Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's journey through history, we're going to take a look at the story of the J. Oswald Boyd shipwreck and its connection to Southwest Michigan. This ship was also known in its time as the Death Ship. So come along and join me. Now, most of this story did not happen in Southwest Michigan, but this story does have a connection with Southwest Michigan, which I will explain as we go along. The event that I'm going to describe today happened in 1936, and it is a petroleum tanker ship called the J. Oswald Boyd, which is the heart of this story. And in late 1936, the J. Oswald Boyd took on more than 1.5 million gallons of gasoline at the Empire Refinery in Whiting, Indiana. And the cargo's ultimate destination was the Dixie Terminal in Detroit. The ship, however, did not arrive at its destination until nearly six years later. So that is going to be the core of the story and what happened to cause it to be so delayed So that's what we're going to get into. But first, I should tell you that this article that I'm referring to mostly in this story, there's a few other newspaper clippings I will reference, but this was published in the Michigan History Magazine, published by the Historical Society of Michigan. And the title of the article was A Fuel Free-for-All, the J. Oswald Boyd Shipwreck. So the story begins with the J. Oswald Boyd, which the J actually stands for Joshua. It was named after Joshua Oswald Boyd. And this ship had operated in the Great Lakes since 1934. So it was a fairly new ship to operating in the Great Lakes. It had only been in operation in the Great Lakes for two years. And it had its fatal voyage in 1936. Now, the Boyd first stopped at the Thiessen Clemens Terminal along the St. Joseph River near St. Joseph. And this is where I want to sidetrack from the story for a little bit and just tell you a little bit of information about this terminal in St. Joseph, which is, of course, in southwest Michigan. And there's an article that I found in the Herald Press, and it was published on the 30th of December, 1961. And it was talking about the Thiessen Clemens Terminal. And essentially, at that point in time, the Thiessen Clemens Terminal was celebrating its 61st year in business. So this was established in 1900. And at that point, in 1961, it was the Midwest's largest petroleum product jobbers, which means they transferred more petroleum than any other marine terminal on the Great Lakes by that time. And it had two different main marine terminals, one in St. Joseph and one at Kipling in the Upper Peninsula. The company owned that. The company's name was Thiessen Clemens. They also owned 11 bulk plants located in southwestern Michigan. And the firm handled upwards of 100 million gallons of petroleum products a year which is quite a lot of gasoline. And of course, the existence of this company was quite a boon for employment in Berrien County. And that's what this article was talking about at the time. So I just wanted to kind of give you the context of this port in St. Joseph. And that was the docking port for Thiessen Clemens and the petroleum ships that would come in and dock. They would sometimes unload fuel there 
for southwestern Michigan, where sometimes they would load fuel. So back to the story. In 1936, the J. Oswald Boyd made its first stop at the Thiessen Clemens Terminal along the St. Joseph's River, and it discharged about half of its load on November 2nd of that year. And it was lighter by 850 thousand gallons. The tanker proceeded on what was supposed to be its second and last stop at Michigan's largest city, Detroit. So it headed north up Lake Michigan. It was going to go through the Mackinac Straits over to Lake Huron and down to Detroit and unload their 850,000 gallons of petroleum. That was the scheduled voyage for the ship. As the Boyd approached the Straits on the morning of November 8th, it encountered a heavy snow squall. And it was unable to see any landmarks, and without direction or a direction finder or radar on board, the crew lost its position and ran hard aground upon a shallow formation called Simmons Reef. Now, using their onboard power, the crew members tried unsuccessfully to refloat the Boyd, and making it clear that the assistance was needed from external sources. To compound the tanker's problem, it was discovered that a hole had been torn in the forward portside hull, allowing gasoline to leak into the surrounding waters of Lake Michigan. So in response, shallow draft U.S. Coast Guard boats from Beaver Island, Charlevoix, and Mackinac City arrived to assist in removing the ship's crew if necessary. Now, the initial idea was to temporarily patch the hole in the void and push or pull the craft off the reef. If that did not work, the tanker General Markham would be used to pump the stranded boat's cargo into its empty tanks, thus lightening the load and possibly freeing the stuck vessel. However, none of those options worked, since all of the potential rescuers of the threatened steamer had drafts that did not allow them to get any closer than a quarter of a mile to the Boyd. Now, a draft is that measuring distance from waterline to the bottom of the boat. That's what they refer to in maritime language. So all of the ships had a larger draft and they couldn't go through the shallow water that the Boyd had gotten themselves stuck in. So they couldn't get closer. They couldn't bring the other tanker up next to the Boyd and transfer the fuel. And so it all became a problem even with rescuing the crew. So after the plans for liberating the Boyd in that manner were frustrated and the high seas began to punish the immovable craft, the 19 crew members were taken from the wreck by Coast Guard rescue boats on November 9th and safely transferred to Mackinac City. With personnel out of danger but the vessel beyond help, the Boyd's owners abandoned it. That action of abandoning the Boyd put the Boyd in the hands of 14 insurance companies. The cargo of the vessel, a dubious prize estimated to be up to 920,000 gallons of gas, potentially worth $150,000 to $180,000 at that time, and it became the property ultimately of the Home Insurance Company of New York. So the owners abandoned the ship, the insurance companies took possession of ownership of the ship, and that was their property at this point. But the ship is still stuck in Lake Michigan. Now, given tradition and maritime laws at the time, once a ship was abandoned by its crew and owners, it was actually considered fair game for salvaging. Thus, it came to pass that the boys' cargo became a free booty for anybody who would call upon it. And for a time after the wreck, boats with shallow enough drafts to clear the reef frequently stopped alongside the Boyd and siphoned gasoline left in its tanks 
that had not been ruptured. Now, many of those helping themselves to fuel from the Boyd's intact compartments were mariners from the Greater Beaver Island Archipelago. One of these individuals was Peter Nielsen, who on November 16, 1936, brought his tug Panther alongside the tanker to fill some barrels with gasoline. While he was engaged in that process, the containers caught fire, apparently from fumes ignited by the tug's stove. Nielsen, badly burned on his hands and face, was pulled from the flaming vessel by his helper, who had been manning the siphon on the Boyd. The fire-engulfed panther was pushed away from the tanker with a pike. The tug sank nearby not long thereafter. Temporarily stranded on the Boyd, the skipper and his mate were rescued later that day. The panther incident was a warning shot across the bow for those who were inclined to help themselves to highly explosive liquid under challenging conditions. It was also a wake-up call for the insurance company that had inherited the Boyd's gasoline. An estimated 200,000 gallons of fuel had already been removed from the vessel's holds by freelancers. In an attempt to ensure that the future extractions benefited the firm, the home insurance company authorized at least two entities to salvage the cargo. One person negotiating with home insurance to take gas off the Boyd was Captain Edward Layway of Sheboygan, Michigan. His steam barge, the Murray Hasgard Stewart, was fitted out with four 2,000-gallon tanks, two 3,500-gallon tanks, and one 400-gallon tank, and 30 cask. By lowering a 6-inch suction hose into the Boyd's tanks, LeWay could fill his containers in just two hours. The fuel removed from the Boyd was brought back to Sheboygan and secured in two tanks, which LeWay had access to. The captain then sold his rescued fuel for 12 cents per gallon and a penny more per gallon on the retail market. Three cents per gallon sold went to the home insurance company. Now, while LeWay compensated the home insurance company on a per-gallon basis, the Beaver Island Transport Company paid a lump sum of $3,700 for the right to salvage as much fuel as possible from the deserted tanker. The vessel initially assigned that task was the package freighter Rambler, a wooden craft outfitted with barrels capable of accommodating 9,000 gallons of recovered gas. The procedure for retrieval was to place a suction pump on the Boyd's deck with a hose going down into part of the ship's innards that contained untainted fuel. A hose on the discharge end of the pump went to pumps in the Rambler's hold. Gas extracted from the Boyd by the Rambler was taken to Beaver Island if bad weather made for rough sailing. Otherwise, the craft's destination was Charlevoix. From that location, the fuel was sold to customers near and far for pennies a gallon. The Rambler made 24 trips to and from the Boyd, removing about 216,000 gallons of fuel. Its service in that capacity ended in December of 1936 because pushing through the developing lake ice was starting to damage the freighter's wooden prow. In response, the Beaver Island Transit Authority replaced Rambler with a steel-hulled vessel that had twice the carrying capacity and could travel with greater speed. On its first trip to the Boyd, the replacement vessel, the Merrill II, returned to port with 18,000 gallons of recovered gasoline on board. Its second trip to the stranded tanker was on January 1st, 1937, which was an unusually calm day for that time of year. As during its previous visit, the Merrill tied up to the stuck watercraft and began pumping gas 
from the 26-foot deep holds. The process continued until about 5 p.m. when people for miles around heard a loud boom and saw smoke and flames coming from the vicinity of Simmons Reef. None of the five crew members of the Merrill survived the blast to testify about what the cause of it was. But there was a number of theories about the explosion origins. Because there was not a breath of wind on Lake Michigan that day, and the Merrill did not have a blower to drive away fumes, there was speculation that a cloud of gas vapors had built up around the worksite. And all it would take in that environment of that nature would be to have two steel holes rubbing against each other and create a spark, or a shoe nail to scrape the deck, the siphon pump to spark, or something like that, a metal drum to be put across a metal floor. Anything that would create a spark on metal could have ignited all the fumes and caused the explosion. It could even have been the diesel engines of the Merrill's creating a static spark when they started up that caused the explosion. So the top deck and pilot house and stack of the Merrill was blown up onto the superstructure of the Boyd, where the wreckage burned for the whole day. And the hull of the Merrill subsequently sank to the bottom of the reef, but surprisingly, the fuel remained in the Boyd's holds, never ignited. So shortly after the incident, government inspectors investigated the cause of the disaster. Their findings said that the Merrill's crew was criminally negligent for failing to take even ordinary precautions in the discharge activities. To prevent such an event from occurring again, the Coast Guard issued orders prohibiting all small craft from thenceforth approaching the scene of the wreck. So as with most winters on Lake Michigan, soon cold weather and a thick layer of surrounding ice rendered the Boyd beyond the reach of boats. While that prevented access to the ill-fated tanker by watercraft, it ironically allowed people to approach the vessel by foot and vehicle. The assault upon the Boyd by land and ice began about February 14, 1937, when fishermen from Brevort, Michigan, secretly laid out a 15-mile trail from the Upper Peninsula to Simmons Reef. The winding path, twisting through the pressure ridges and weak zones in the frozen surface, allowed locals to quietly reach the stranded tanker by car, truck, and sleigh to relieve it of its precious liquid cargo. So a bonanza of that scope could not be kept secret for long, and by February 25th, the general public was aware that an opportunity existed for adventurous souls to get some complimentary fuel. People converged on the wreck by the hundreds. They came from as far north as Sault Ste. Marie, and as far west as Escanaba, on the far east as Cedarville, and as far south as Cross Village and Beaver Island. You should really just look at the map of Lake Michigan just to see the distance that these people were traveling across the frozen lake to get the gasoline. It's quite something. The throngs arrived equipped with pans, bottles, jugs, pails, tubs, barrels, and drums. Anything that would accommodate their acquisitions. The employees of one regional dairy farm even used milk cans for briefly storing their pirated petrol. Later, despite the cans being subsequently washed, hundreds of gallons of milk had to be destroyed because of a lingering bad taste imparted by residual odors of the flammable liquid. While local service stations saw a noticeable decline in their gas sales, other businesses benefited from the mad rush to fetch free fuel. Stores selling containers experienced heavy trade, and the regional supply of sunglasses went off the charts. 
In fact, sunglass sails were so exhausted, and because people were traveling out on the ice, they needed something to avoid snow blindness, so they were, of course, taking sunglasses with them. The individuals attracted to the frozen field were generally of three types. Some were just sightseers, or the curious, those that showed up to witness the spectacle. Another group was composed of souvenir hunters and scavengers who collectively stripped the vessel of all removable fixtures, parts, and equipment. And then the last faction consisted of those who actually extracted gasoline from the tanker. The fuel was removed from the wreck by siphons, or by dropping buckets attached to ropes into the holds and then hauling up the gratis gas. The high-octane distillate was then loaded into surrounding vehicles and transported to the mainland. By such means, it was estimated that 10,000 gallons per day left the void. That's a lot of gasoline being hauled out by truck, car, and sleigh. Retrieval operations took place around the clock. Those going to and from at night had limited visibility, and it was really a risky proposition when transversing that dangerous environment and terrain across Lake Michigan. And such danger was borne out on February 28th when a truck loaded with three tons of liberated gas fell through a newly created crack in the ice, killing the driver. After the death of the truck driver, the sixth person to die while trying to remove fuel from the Boyd, the sheriff of Mackinac County warned people not to visit the wreck, but the call for free gas spoke louder than his words. The Michigan State Police said it would not prevent people from driving on the ice, and the Coast Guard refused to take any action because the ship was not considered a hazard to navigation. So out of desperation, the sheriff called on the U.S. Army to bomb the wreck and thus put an end to the treacherous activities. The idea being that the planes would uh, fly from Selfridge Field, which would handle the assignment, but the officials at the facility said they had no bombs and not even any bombers there. So that idea kind of went by the wayside. In any event, the insurance underwriters would never have approved such an operation to blow up the ship because of the liability attached with it. So the sheriff's safety concerns were partially realized when the tanks of the vessel were finally emptied on March 3rd. However, that meant that the fuel, once confined to the holds of the wreck, was now stored in largely illegal containers in or near homes, garages, and barns all over the Upper Peninsula. Insurance agents warned policyholders in the area under such circumstances accidental fires would be excluded from their homeowner's insurance coverage. Another problem arose for some of those that had helped themselves to combustible fuels from the Boyd's Holds. The state of Michigan collected four cents for every gallon of gas sold. Because some of the bootleg fuel was being bartered or offered for sale, Michigan sent representatives from the state tax commission to the Upper Peninsula in an effort to secure the government's share of the transactions. But it was soon determined that such interactions were very difficult to trace and so the attempted collection effort was eventually abandoned just about a week later. So that never happened. The state of Michigan never got their taxes for that fuel. So the first attempts in the final chapter of the Boyd to free it from Simmons Reef were unsuccessful. This was due because of low depth clearances preventing rescue vehicles from getting close to the stranded tanker. 
Chances are, even if access to the boat had been possible, the craft would have been too heavy to get off the rocks unless its liquid cargo was removed. So, in essence, the scavengers taking the gas off the Boyd had lightened the bulk carrier to the point that salvage operations could reasonably be undertaken. And so, toward the end of May of that year, the M.H. Stewart was twice taken to Simmons Reef to pump out the tanker and tow it to Sheboygan. This was pumping out the water that had built up in the the holds of the tanker holding it down because of that rupture that had happened. But both efforts were frustrated because ice buildup in the holds prevented the vessel's interior from being dewatered. So in late May, three men from Detour Village, Michigan, tried their hands at refloating the Boyd. After 10 days of pumping and patching, the men were able to free the tanker and tow it to their home port on the mouth of the St. Mary's River. There, they grounded the vessel and over time cut off parts from the upper works and sold the metal for scrap. With the onset of World War II, the price of scrap greatly increased, making the 1,500 tons of steel in the Boyd's hull a valuable commodity. So a salvaging job of that scope couldn't really be undertaken at the Detour village. So in June of 1942, the vessel was once again pumped out and refloated, preparing it for a relocation to a major metal recycling facility. A month later, what remained of the Boyd was hooked up to the tug John Rowan III, which towed the troubled tanker 325 miles south to Ecorse, Michigan, on the Detroit River. Reaching its destination on June 15, 1942, In return for $9,929, the vessel was handed over to the Great Lakes Steel Corporation for conversion into armaments for World War II. The ship had suffered lacerations from jagged rocks, assaults from pounding waves and blows from crushing ice, the effects of a serious fire, and hundreds of human invaders, and the ship was transformed into munitions and military hardware capable of inflicting similar trauma upon the Axis powers. And so this article was written by Leroy G. Barnett, and he's a Michigan historian who's been a historian in Michigan for 49 years. So quite an amazing article. I highly recommend that you subscribe to the Michigan History Magazine. A lot of great stories. There's an incredible amount of photos that accompany this article, and it's certainly a fascinating story about one ship in Lake Michigan that became known as the Death Ship because it uh, had so many deaths related to it in its following its accident. So that's going to conclude today's journey through history. I hope you enjoyed this story. If you did, please take some time to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you're listening on, and then head on over on Facebook to my Facebook page, Michael Delaware Author, and hit the follow button there. Follow along with me. I'll be making announcements about my book very soon. Um, The actual publication date, folks, on my book on true crime that is coming out in March, the actual publication date I found out this past week is going to be March 11th. So I will be taking time over the next couple weeks to add some more information on my website. I've been very busy lately, not been able to get to that, but I plan to fit that in and spend a day or so updating my website with all of that new information. And I'm also in the process of lining up a lot of book signing dates in March, April, and May and speaking engagements, which you'll be welcome to come and hear me. And I'm doing it all over Southwest Michigan. And I've got right now, as of the work that I completed this week on scheduling, I have speaking engagements in Kalamazoo, Battle Creek, Colon, Michigan, Albion, Michigan, and Marshall, Michigan. 
I am working on speaking engagements in Coldwater and Berrien County, and I plan to do some speaking up in Hastings, and I'm also working with uh, Eaton, Rapids, and Charlotte on a couple of speaking events up that way. So I'll be speaking all over uh, the southwest Michigan area where a lot of the stories within the book took place. So I hope that you'll have the ability to come and join me at one of those locations and hear me speak and and meet me face-to-face and get a signed copy of the book and that sort of thing. So that's the plan for 2024. And there'll probably be some changes to the podcast uh, in 2024. I'm still working on that now, and I'll make announcements on that sometime in December as I roll into the new year. And as always, you can reach out to me on michaeldelaware.com. I am always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.